Welcome everyone to TC Spotlight, where we are shining the spotlight on people doing interesting and positive things in the Twin County. Zzz, Twin Counties. We are joined today by Sean Rose, who will also sometimes goes by Nick. So if you hear me refer to him as Nick, that's why. Uh, Sean is a local blacksmith here in Rocky Mount. So we're going to talk about his work as a blacksmith. But first, um, Sean, if you can just tell us how you ended up in the Twin Counties. Um, so I was actually born in North Carolina, but after that, we moved around a little bit. Uh, so we ended up in Michigan and then in Denver, Colorado, and then circled back to North Carolina, Rocky Mount, uh, by the time I was six. Um, but since I was six years old, we've been here, you know, lived here ever since. And uh, yeah. Uh, what schools did you go to locally? Uh, I spent most of my time at Falls Road. Um, downtown Rocky Mount, and uh, I was there until 11th grade, and then went to uh, started going to Wilson Christian Academy. So, so before we jump into talking about your blacksmithing, uh, what do you like about living in the Twin Counties? What do I like about living here? Hmm. I'll t- I'll, I can tell you the one thing that I really miss when I leave here that I recognize when I come back. Well, first of all, there's like a smell. I don't know what it is, but you can. I think it's the pine. A good smell. Presumably. It's a good smell. It's, well, I mean, it depends on where you are. Yeah. You always recognize it. Most of the time it's good. <laughs> but um, I, I love the look of the trees because you can be riding down the highway, and then if you're coming from out of state or something, you just start to recognize, okay, I'm home now. There's you know a, a line of pine trees along the highway. I recognize this curve or something. So I always notice that when I get back in state, uh, and I think – it's probably the thing that hits me the most when I get back here. So you're a blacksmith, is that right? I am, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here staring at a sword that I believe you had some hand in. I, I refurbished that. It was pre-made. Um, yeah, but I, I cleaned it up a little bit, gave it a new handle. So. so you're a fairly young guy. When I think of blacksmiths, I tend to think of medieval. Uh, yeah, long beard, gray hair. Yeah, so how, how did you end up blacksmithing? Um, so it would have been about six years ago, uh, literally just ran across a video of someone doing it on YouTube and of course it hit me. I'm, I was that kid, uh, at like five years old, I picked up a stick and it was immediately a sword or a gun or something. And I'm always running around in the backyard, uh, sword fighting, you know, myself or other unaware children. Um, <laughs> and so I, it just kind of came towards to me naturally, uh, not the skill, but certainly the desire for it. And then, you know, I always liked fire as well, you know, roasting marshmallows. That was always fun. So you kind of get to put those two things together. Um, also like the other part of it that people don't necessarily think of is, uh, but I was always kind of artistic as a kid. Like I was, I never trained in it or took art classes, but if you go into like my, uh, math book or you know, even Bible book in school, it was all filled with doodles. And, you know, a good chunk of those doodles were like, you know, fantasy weapons or swords or giant axes um, that that would look cool in a TV show or something. So th- there's an artistic aspect of it as well that kind of gets uh, thrown into the, uh, I guess, hyper-masculine nature of being a blacksmith or bladesmith. So, yeah, I was going to ask that is, uh, did you just get lost in Tolkien and never came out? That too, yeah. Yeah. I uh, read all the way through The Hobbit, Fellowship, Two Towers, uh, King. Yeah. Loved him. 
so so you went to the school of YouTube is what I'm hearing. I went to the the university of YouTube we call it. So um, what what all cuz presumably uh I I would guess there's some blacksmithing that anyone could do but presumably there are certain tools that you need to to do things correctly. Can you can you get into a little bit of the the gear that's required? So if if you wanted to do bare bones like if if a blacksmith gets lost in the woods and he needs to forge a knife or something, uh, you you could make do just digging a hole in the ground, starting a fire, and finding two reasonable-sized rocks. You know, that's your anvil, that's your hammer, that's your forge, and if you find a scrap piece of metal around there, you can make a tool. You know, so there's that level of it. Um... And if you wanted to do it as a hobby, you know, you don't have to get that much more sophisticated with it. Like, there's YouTube videos out there that show you, hey, here's how you can get started for a dollar, right? Um, if you want to be doing it on a more professional scale, um, then it's going to take a little more cash input. But the, the way someone else put it to me was, uh, you don't need, oh, how did they say it? You don't need a lot of tools to make nice things. But you do need to make a you do need a lot of tools to make a lot of nice things. So if you're trying to do it as a business, you you kind of do need to put in that money towards it and get the right equipment and whatnot. But just starting up doing it as a hobby, you don't need that much. You know, a space to do it, uh, people around you who are willing to let you be a bit crazy, uh, that's always nice. Um, but yeah. So, what kind of things do you predominantly make? So I'm mainly a bladesmith, and people kind of distinguish that from blacksmithing because it's just a very specific area of blacksmithing. Um, but I mainly do knives, axes. Uh, I haven't actually made a sword yet. I've, I've half made a sword. It's not finished, but it's there. One day I'll finish it. But mainly knives. Yeah. Where do you get the materials? Originally, it was just like the scrapyard, uh, so old truck leaf springs or even uh, car springs for suspension. Uh, those can make really good knives if you know how to do it right. Um, but mainly now, I'll, I'll source mine from, uh, there's a great website, a knife supply shop called Pops Knife Supply. I get a lot of my steel and supplies from there. Uh, New Jersey Steel Baron is a great place. And uh, they have a lot of info that you can use as well. Because not all steel is the same. And so, um, you know, first of all, not all steel is good for knife making. But even under that subset of steel, you have to treat them all very differently. You know, they forge differently. They quench differently. They heat treat differently. So, Can, can you geek out a little and go more into that? Geek out a little? Okay. Um, so some steel, well, first of all, uh, people kind of pick up metal on the road and they think, Oh, it's steel, you know, I can make a knife out of this. Yep. Yeah. That would be me. So there, there is a level to where that's true. Um, cause you can sharpen, you can sharpen a butter knife, let's say, and make it really sharp and even shave a little bit with it. But the difference is that's not going to stay sharp because that steel is not hardenable. I mean, it is a little bit depending on the steel, but if you get a, uh, say something like D2 and you, you know what you're doing when you're heat treating it, you can, get a really high level of hardness out of it. Whereas if you go with something like 5160... What, would, what, do, what do these numbers mean? Ah, this is the grade of the steel? Yes, it's how they denote the uh, alloy, basically, in the steel. So if I say something like 5160, 
um, those numbers correlate to often the carbon content. So 60, the last two digits would be the carbon content. And then 51, I believe, is denoting probably the chromium involved. Um, but that's, that's a giant rabbit hole. Uh, but basically when they throw those numbers out there, you don't even need to know them, especially as a beginner bladesmith. You don't need to know all of the, uh, chemical compositions of steel because what you can do is you can say, okay, I've got a leaf spring here, right? And that is generally something close to 5160, a spring steel. And then you can go on YouTube, find someone that you trust and they say, Hey, 5160, heat it at this temperature, quench it in this material, and it's done. Now, after you get past that point, then you start to learn the why of what you're doing it. Why does spring steel react this way? Why do you have to temper it differently? Why do you not use water to quench with this steel? Why can you use it with this steel? So it's it goes down to the alloys, and thankfully a lot of that science has worked out from the those old blacksmiths in medieval times that kind of worked it out for us back then. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that science I don't really know by heart. I just know the application of it. And then you slowly learn the rest of it as you go through. Gotcha. So, uh, you mentioned heating things up, obviously when I think of a blacksmith, I, I, in the, again, going back to the medieval images, yeah. there's a giant fire, there's people yep. sticking things in the fire and then pulling them out and hammering them. Is that what you're doing? And how are, how do you make your fire? So short answer is yes. The long answer is there are subtle differences. So yes, there's a big fire. Yes, there's an anvil. Yes, there's a hammer. Um, if you like, so if you go to like, so if you play Skyrim or something, you'll see that giant forge and it's got the bellows blowing. Whereas in my shop, that's replaced with a smaller box forge and then it's got bricks lining it and it's connected to propane. And that's how I get my, I don't blow air in there. The propane is uh, pressurized, so it blows out through the uh, hose. And then it's got holes on the side of the pipe that lead into the forge. And the pressure of blowing that propane through also sucks in oxygen from the surrounding air. And the oxygen is what's really burning in there. Gotcha. So they have made some progress since the Middle East. They've made a little bit of progress. <laughs> One of the things I love about it is how much has stayed the same. And now there's obviously been a bunch of advances. The, the quality and consistency of our steel. Um, the real science behind how to heat stuff and stuff like that. But I love how much of it has stayed the same, you know. So I could go to like a medieval fair and fit right in because so much of it is still exactly what they did. You know, you can use bellows, you can use uh, coal, and, uh, you know, I love that. You don't need power tools. You can make do. So what, what temperatures are you dealing with? In the thousands. Um, so if you're doing, if you see guys doing like Damascus or forge welding, they're going to get up to higher temperatures. Ooh. Can, you, can you explain what Damascus and forge welding are? Ah. So uh, forge or a pattern welded Damascus is where you take um, different alloys of steel. And because they're different alloys, they react differently. First of all, when you quench them, but also when you etch them with acid. Um, so you take something like, uh, I haven't actually done this. I know the theory behind it. So if there's anyone who knows better, give me a little bit of mercy. But <laughs> you'll take something like a ferric chloride and you'll forge weld those different alloys together make a knife shape out of it clean it up and then you'll take that blade blank dip it in the acid 
and it will start to eat away at the material. But because there's different alloys, they've hardened and they're, the acid eats away at them at different rates. And so what you're left with is this, it's not really an optical illusion, but this pattern starts to show up because you can see the difference in how they reacted to the steel. And so it makes these really cool contrast. And there are these wizards out there that can just make great patterns in steel. And it's, it's really ridiculous how they figured it out. But um, that's, that's Damascus. So you'll get this really nice kind of black and white and gray pattern in the steel. And then, um, and you, you said quenching. Is that, I guess that's the cooling off really yeah, so, quickly. So quenching is the really cool part that everyone likes to watch. Um, if you watch Forged in Fire, it's the part where they take the glowing red blade, dunk it in the oil, and then usually in shows like that, there's a giant fireball afterwards. Um, it's not really necessary. It's more for show. You're really just supposed to stick the blade in and leave it. Uh, but but yeah. that's oil? Most of the time. Most of the time. Okay. The I, time. I always thought it was water. Sometimes it is. Um, generally, it's a bit more dangerous to use water, but again, it depends on the steel. Uh, some steels actually use air to quench them. Uh, you literally just get some fast-moving air and blow it on the blade, and it will harden. So there's actually a lot of variability in there. What kind of oil? Is this, we're talking about olive oil? You could. You could use olive oil. Uh, if you're going for, like, a uh, very rudimentary setup, you know, as a beginner, uh, peanut oil is a good way to do it. Once you start to get into the stage where you want to be more consistent, you're going to want to go – on those websites like uh, New Jersey Steel Baron, Pops Knife Supply, and they'll say, hey, use this for this alloy of steel. Um, so you've got, uh, let's see, AAA oil, and it's listed as a quench oil. And so they, the reason you would use different oils versus uh, water or air, it's about the rate that you want to cool the steel down. So if you have a fast quenching oil, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cool down that steel a lot faster than a slow quenching oil. And water's gonna do it a lot faster than oil. Um, but some steels, when they're quenched that quickly, they crack, and which is not good to have crack Have, have you had that happen to you? Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. If you don't, you just haven't made a lot of knives. Yeah. You know, that's <laughs> unfortunately, there's a giant pile of knives that no one will ever see. Um, some of them have been chucked into the backyard that I'll find one day with the lawnmower. But yeah. <laughs> so okay, so you're a bladesmith. So uh, can you go a little into the kinds of uh, blades that you make? Is there? Uh, I guess I I would assume that there's like you know you think of like samurai blades and yeah. straighted. Whatever. That's that's the one that people always go to immediately because yeah. it's it's the it it is really cool and it has a really cool history like the it's the samurai sword. Um, which, you know, that kind of construction, when you get into the metallurgical aspect, is, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, slightly overrated sword in terms of, you know. That's a hot take right here. It It's it's a hot take on Literally. the ground. You know, and if there's a group of mall, uh, mall ninjas listening, <laughs> you know, they'll, they might get a bit of offended. But among the bladesmithing community or, or even the historic community, um, now it's not a bad sword. I'm not saying that at all, but. In terms of how people uh, deify it as the as the pinnacle of all weaponry, it's not quite there. It's really good, and the Japanese were definitely masters of their craft. But yeah. Well, actually, so before we jump into the blades you make, who makes the best blades? The best blades. 
uh, like, who, like in like, history. Yeah, like historically, what what is the best blade? Which country? Which which army? Ooh. Hmm. If it wasn't the samurai. Okay, so like if I had to say I had to pick one, I might just go like straight up like, uh, you know, European medieval like the uh, hand and a half sword or the bastard sword as it's called. That's that probably be my favorite. Um, I think they all did kind of different things well, I guess. But what you have to understand is these different cultures have to develop their form of smithing and bladesmithing based on the materials they have around them, right? Um, and maybe they're nomadic, so maybe they can't, uh, you know, sit there and uh, smelt their ore like, say, some other ones did, like the Vikings. So one th- here's the interesting fact. The Vikings, they would put bones in their uh, blades when they were smelting their ore. They would put bones in there, and to them, they were infusing their weapons with the, the spirits of their ancestors. In reality, they might have actually just been adding carbon to it, which is why their blades might have been stronger, uh, which is kind of fun. They kind of tripped into something uh, metallurgically sound there. Um so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to make a strong stance on who had the best ones. They, they all did a good job as far as I'm concerned. What, what is smelting? That's, is that like? So if you take like some, uh, if you, you know, dig deep in the ground or you find some fallen meteorite, um, process of like taking that ore and uh, making it into actual steel and iron. You know, maybe you have some iron, but you want to make it into steel. Um, you would add the alloys in there, the bones, uh, and then those actually come together more or less to create a solid-ish mass of iron or steel alloy. And then you have a skilled smith sort of forge those out, work out whatever impurities they can. Um, now today it's a much, uh, not simpler, but it's much more consistent and scientific process. Back then, like, it's crazy that they figured out how to do it, in my opinion. It, yeah. Uh, Andrew Carnegie was the answer we were looking for on who made the best oh. steel blades. <laughs> so, okay, let's get in, then to the, the kind of blade you make. Mm. Um, yeah, how do you go about deciding what kind of blade? Is it people, are people placing orders for specific kinds that they want? Uh, sometimes, yeah. Do you have a specialty? I I really, like, my favorite would just be, like, the like a a Bowie chopper, you know, something like kind of big that if you really needed to, you could cut down a tree with it. You know, if a wild bear ran up on you, you have visions of, you know, you know, Davy Crockett wrestling it, getting it with your Bowie knife or whatever. So that's my favorite. It's, it's kind of a romantic relationship, I think. Um, Are those difficult to make in terms difficult? of, in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, all that goes into it compared to the other blades you would make? Uh, in a in a sense, they could be more difficult because um you, you are dealing with a bigger blade. Um, it also could be kind of easier because they're bigger. Um, but I would say the most difficult thing would be what you're using it for. So, you know, if you're using a different steel, so, so when someone comes to me and says, "Hey, I want a knife," and they don't really have an idea of why, my question is, okay, what is this knife going to be doing? Is it going to be taken out into the woods and just hacked into trees is it going to be hung on the mantle are you going to try to use it for is it a cooking knife you know 
um, because depending on what it's going to be used for, I'm going to make it differently. So if someone says, you know, it's just going to be, I just want to take it out of the woods and beat it up, you know, 5160 is going to be a good steel. It's very tough. Um, it can still hold an edge. Um, and yeah, it's, it can take a lot of abuse. I'm going to use 5160. I'm going to make more of a chopper knife, maybe a Bowie, uh, something with a lot of meat on the spine that can take that abuse, you know. If it's just going to be hung up on the mantelpiece, um, then, you know, maybe you don't worry about the, uh, the heat treatment is not going to be your top priority. It's going to be more fit, finish, symmetry, that sort of thing. And a chef's knife is going to be, chefs really value the hardness of a knife because it means it can stay sharp for longer. And they're not necessarily, you know, they're not going to be slamming it into a tree branch that has rocks hidden in it or something. They're going to be slicing vegetables, da, 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 and it has to repeat that performance. So you're going to want a higher uh, hardness in that steel. What was the original question? What knives oh, do I like to make? Yeah, well, that, that was, you answered my question. But yeah, what, okay. knives, what <laughs> knives do you like to make? You talked about the Bowie knife. Are there any others? Uh, well, I do make a lot of railroad spike knives. Um, where it's like, if you know what a, a railroad spike is, you just take that, you know, flatten out the end of it, give it a twist or something, and call it a railroad spike knife, uh, which those are a bit controversial in the bladesmithing community. Uh, I'll give a hot take and say, like, I love them. I think they're awesome. Why are they controversial? Because of this, generally because of the steel that they are made from. And I think, you know, people kind of say, oh, Railroad spikes, they can make a good knife. And depending on what you mean by a good knife, you're going to get someone saying, you're crazy, that's not a good knife at all. Or you can take my version and be like, yeah, it, it can make a good knife. So, again, we've talked about steel a lot. The steel that they used for railroad spikes, first of all, they were not meant to be blades. They're not the ideal steel for making blades. Um, at any rate, they don't have r a really high enough carbon content. Now, the high carbon railroad spikes, you can get a bit of hardness out of them, but because it's it's very low, it's really uh, low carbon steel. They, did, they didn't smelt the enemies of the railroaders into the. Into they the they didn't. They might have. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they were mass produced. Second of all, so. Each ra a railroad spike does not have to be finely tuned uh, material mm -hmm. to do its job. They're mass-produced, inconsistent steel alloys and all of them, and they just get put in the ground. And even the ones that say high carbon, what they mean is high carbon for a railroad spike. It's not actual high carbon steel. And so someone will say, oh, I got a railroad spike. This is a great knife. And a bladesmith will say, wait a minute, that's a horrible knife. You know, if you use it, the edge is going to wear down. You can't get a high level of hardness out of it. And my take is, okay, yes. If you're looking for a competition knife, that's not going to win the prize. If you're looking for a good knife, yeah, it can be a good knife. You can, you can use it, you know, if you need to cut a rope or something, you can get a decent functional knife out of it. Plus, it's really cool because it's made from a railroad you know yeah so one of some of my favorite orders are when people come up to me or hit me up online and say hey uh me and my kid used to play on the railroad tracks all the time or me and or my dad used to be a train conductor driver and uh i want to make him something that's a great knife if you can take a piece of that kid's history 
and uh, or that family's history, and you can give it back to them and make something cool out of it, like a knife. Um, in my opinion, that's a great knife. You know, th there's a lot of history behind it, and that's part of why I became a bladesmith, anyways, because um, why you can make real high quality uh, stuff by bladesmithing. You know, you've got that bladesmith sitting there analyzing every aspect of it. You can get the highest quality knife out of it. The flip side is you get you get a piece of their soul with it. You know, you get their artistry or the material you're using comes with its own history like that railroad spike. So there's a whole other artistic side that comes into it. And I think that's part of it. You know, that's that's a valuable thing. You know, that's that's really interesting. I would never have thought about. But that makes a lot of sense. Is, is there anything uh, are there any other kind of uh steel i guess that people bring to you as memorabilia that has that memory that they say turn this into a knife uh wrenches wrenches yeah again not the greatest knife steel um but someone says hey you know my dad's retiring from the mechanic shop um can you make something out of a wrench just as a little uh not a trinket but you know like a, a memorial uh piece for him because it was something that meant a lot to him you know mm -hmm. Um, you know, if I mentioned, uh, truck leaf springs before people say, Hey, my dad was a trucker. Uh, this is a piece of his truck. Can you make me a knife out of it? Yeah. That's the cool thing. I can. Yeah. yeah. And you can keep that and you can say, Hey, this is a piece of my history. And then you can give that to your grandkid and say, Hey, this, he can say, Hey, this belonged to my grandpa. And now it's this cool thing. So, okay. So if someone's listening to this and they're hearing everything you're saying and they're excited about the idea of blacksmithing or, mm. or bladesmithing, uh, what would your recommendation be for them? Is it to go to YouTube first? Is it to reach out to you? Well, it, it depends. Is it to go to Reddit? <laughs> Red, not, no. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot of good stuff online. You know, you've got a ton of bladesmithing forums out there. Um, it'll partially depend on your budget um, and what kind of, level of commitment you want to put into it. Um, if you have the disposable income, find a class near you. Uh, people are giving classes nowadays. Um, you know, it's not going to be like a full-on apprenticeship, but you can say, hey, uh, there's, uh, I know there's a place in Raleigh I went to. I wish I remembered the name of it. But um, bladesmiths and blacksmiths will give you lessons, you know, maybe for an afternoon, it'll cost whatever, and you can go in and get a feel for it. You know, if you just wanted to try it out once, as a one-time experience, you got that, and you're doing it supervised by someone who, you know, knows the mistakes that you don't want to make because it is a very dangerous uh, hobby. You know, um, if you don't want to spend that money, do your research, get on YouTube. There are some things you do not want to put in a forge, right? So if you go get some steel from Lowe's or wherever, there's a good chance it's coated with zinc. You don't want to put that in a fire. Uh, you don't want to be breathing that. It's, it's not good for you. <laughs> so do your research. Be careful. But, yeah, go for it. Have fun. Is, is there much of a blacksmithing community in eastern North Carolina? Are, so, you, are you kind of a lone wolf out here? I, I am a bit of a lone wolf, but that's not because there's not a community. Um, it is a bit difficult at first to find it. Facebook is a good way. But kind of if when I started out, you know, I, I didn't even realize that I could go online and find other people that do it, you know, people that know way more than me about it. Um, kind of wish I'd done it sooner, but yeah, get on Facebook. There's Facebook groups all over. 
and you know maybe you have to drive an hour but maybe some guy says hey i'm hosting a hammer in which is basically a bunch of crazy people get together and go whack on steel for a few hours of the day and uh you know maybe you drive an hour maybe you drive two hours but it's a great time and it's worth it you know and you get a lot of knowledge out of it so people want to find you if they if they want to follow your work or uh if they if they have a a wrench that they want made into a knife (laughs) uh what's the best way to uh to reach out to you um so basically all of my uh social media places which right now i think is just instagram um tiktok for the time being tiktok doesn't like knives very much so we'll see <laughs> um <laughs> yeah reach out for in- instagram's probably the best way sean rose blacksmith uh, s-e-a-n-r-o-s-e blacksmith um that's what i'm under i'm on facebook but i kind of gave up on that just because i'm so bad at social media you know running the business is kind of uh there's more to it than you think at first. You don't yeah. just get to stay at the anvil. You got to go to the anvil, go to the grinder, and then you got to go online and all that and mess with all that. It's unfortunate, but it's a uh, it's a privileged problem, I think. Part of it, yeah. Yeah. And and, and is it? Uh, do you have things for sale, or is it usually custom order? Like people approach you and say, "This is what I want." I do have things for sale. Um, the items that I have currently ready to go are going to be on Etsy under Sean Rose Blacksmith again. Um, I do take custom orders. I am trying to move away from that, though, because I realized, you know, uh, someone will come to me with an idea in their head. And in order to get that, I now have to, you know, first of all, it might not be something I know how to do. So I have to spend a lot of time figuring out how to do that thing, how to make it match their vision. And so those are some of my favorite orders. They're also some of my least favorite. So I'm kind of trying to move away from that and really focus on the stuff I already know how to do and perfecting that craft. Awesome. Well, well, thank you, Sean, for joining us. Uh, it's, it's cool to know that there are people like you Mm -hmm. doing these interesting things in in the twin counties. Um, and yeah, once again, give your, give your Instagram one more time, Sean Rose blacksmith. All right, go visit him and, uh, and be sure to support what he's doing. Thanks so much for having me. Yep. Thanks. 